Section 15 of Inca Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Inca Lands by Hiram Bingham. Chapter 9, Part 1. The Last Four Incas. Readers of Prescott's charming classic, The Conquest of Peru, will remember that Pizarro, after killing Atahualpa, the Inca who had tried in vain to avoid his fate by filling a room with vessels of gold, decided to establish a native prince on the throne of the Incas to rule in accordance with the dictates of Spain. The young prince, Manco, a son of the great Inca Huayna Capac, named for the first Inca, Manco Capac, the founder of the dynasty, was selected as the most acceptable figurehead. He was a young man of ability and spirit. His induction into office in 1534, with appropriate ceremonies, the barbaric splendor of which only made the farce the more pitiful, did little to gratify his natural ambition. As might have been foreseen, he chafed under restraint escaped as soon as possible from his attentive guardians, and raised an army of faithful Quichuas. There followed the siege of Cusco, briefly characterized by Don Alonso Enriquez de Guzman, who took part in it as the most fearful and cruel war in the world. When in 1536 Cusco was relieved by Pizarro's comrade, Almagro, the Manco's last chance of regaining the ancient capital of his ancestors failed the inca retreated to olentaytambo here on the banks of the river urubamba manco made a determined stand but olentaytambo was too easily reached by pizarro's mounted cavaliers the inca's followers although aroused to their utmost endeavors by the presence of the magnificent stone edifices fortresses granaries palaces and hanging gardens of their ancestors found it necessary to retreat they fled in a northerly direction, and made good their escape over snowy passes to Huidicos, in the fastnesses of Huilcapampa, a veritable American Switzerland. The Spaniards who attempted to follow Manco found his position practically impregnable. The citadel of Huilcapampa, a gigantic natural fortress, defended by nature in one of her profoundest moods, was only to be reached by fording dangerous torrents or crossing the mountains by narrow defiles which themselves are higher than the most lofty peaks of europe it was hazardous for hannibal and napoleon to bring their armies through the comparatively low passes of the alps pizarro found it impossible to follow the inca manco over the pass of panticala itself a snowy wilderness higher than the summit of mont blanc in no part of the peruvian andes are there so many beautiful snowy peaks Nearby is the sharp, icy pinnacle of Mount Veronica, elevation 19,342 feet. Not far away is another magnificent snow-capped peak, Mount Salcante, 20,565 feet above the sea. Near Salcante is the sharp needle of Mount Soray, 19,435 feet, while to the west of it are Panta, 18,590 feet, and Suarococha, 18,197 feet. On the shoulders of these mountains are unnamed glaciers and little valleys that have scarcely ever been seen except by some hardy prospector or inquisitive explorer.
These valleys are to be reached only through passes where the traveler is likely to be waylaid by violent storms of hail and snow. During the rainy season, a large part of Wilcapampa is absolutely impenetrable. Even in the dry season, the difficulties of transportation are very great. The most sure-footed mule is sometimes unable to use the trails without assistance from man. It was an ideal place for the Inca Manco. The conquistador Cieza de Leon, who wrote in 1550 a graphic account of the wars of Peru, says that Manco took with him a great quantity of treasure, collected from various parts, and many loads of rich clothing of wool, delicate in texture and very beautiful and showy. The Spaniards were absolutely unable to conceive of the ruler of a country traveling without rich treasure. It is extremely doubtful whether Manco burdened himself with much gold or silver. Except for ornament, there was little use to which he could have put the precious metals, and they would have served only to arouse the cupidity of his enemies. His people had never been paid in gold or silver. Their labor was his due, and only such part of it as was needed to raise their own crops and make their own clothing was allotted to them. In fact, their lives were in his hands, and the custom and usage of centuries made them faithful followers of their great chief. That Manco, however, actually did carry off with him beautiful textiles and anything else which was useful may be taken for granted. In Huiticos, safe from the armed forces of his enemies, the Inca was also able to enjoy the benefits of a delightful climate, and was in a well-watered region where corn, potatoes, both white and sweet, and the fruits of the temperate and subtropical regions easily grow. Using this as a base, he was accustomed to sally forth against the Spaniards frequently, and in unexpected directions. His raids were usually successful. It was relatively easy for him, with a handful of followers, to dash out of the mountain fastnesses, cross the Apurimac River either by swimming or on primitive rafts, and reach the great road between Cusco and Lima, the principal highway of Peru. Officials and merchants whose business led them over this route found it extremely precarious. Manco cheered his followers by making them realize that in these raids they were taking sweet revenge on the Spaniards for what they had done to Peru. It is interesting to note that Cieza de Lidon justifies Manco in his attitude, for the Spaniards had indeed seized his inheritance, forcing him to leave his native land and to live in banishment. Manco's success in securing such a place of refuge, and in using it as a base from which he could frequently annoy his enemies, led many of the Orijones of Cusco to follow him. The Inca chiefs were called Orijones, big ears, by the Spaniards, because the lobes of their ears had been enlarged artificially to receive the great gold earrings which they were fond of wearing. Three years after Manco's retirement to the wilds of Huilcampampa, there was born in Cusco, in the year 1539, Garcilaso Inca de la Vega, the son of an Inca princess and one of the conquistadores. As a small child, Garcilaso heard of the activities of his royal relative. He left Peru as a boy and spent the rest of his life in Spain. After forty years in Europe, he wrote partly from memory, his royal commentaries, an account of the country of his Indian ancestors. Of the Inca Manco, of whom he must frequently have heard uncomplimentary reports as a child, he speaks apologetically. He says, 
In the time of Manco Inca, several robberies were committed on the road by his subjects, but still they had that respect for the Spanish merchants that they let them go free and never pillaged them of their wares and merchandise, which were in no manner useful to them. Howsoever they robbed the Indians of their cattle, llamas and alpacas, bred in the country. The Inca lived in the mountains, which afforded no tame cattle, and only produced tigers and lions and serpents of twenty-five and thirty feet long, with other venomous insects. I am quoting from Sir Paul Reichout's translation, published in London in 1688. Garcilaso says Manco's soldiers took only such food as they found in the hands of the Indians, which the Inca did usually call his own saying that he who was master of that whole empire might lawfully challenge such a proportion thereof as was convenient to supply his necessary and natural support a reasonable apology and yet personally i doubt whether manco spared the spanish merchants and failed to pillage them of their wares and merchandise as will be seen later, we found in Manco's palace some metal articles of European origin which might very well have been taken by Manco's raiders. Furthermore, it should be remembered that Garcilaso, although often quoted by Prescott, left Peru when he was sixteen years old, and that his ideas were largely colored by his long life in Spain and his natural desire to extol the virtues of his mother's people, a brown race despised by the white Europeans for whom he wrote. The methods of warfare and the weapons used by Manco and his followers at this time are thus described by Guzman. He says the Indians had no defensive arms such as helmets, shields, and armor, but used lances, arrows, dubs, axes, halberds, darts, and slings, and another weapon which they call ayas, the bolas consisting of three round stones sewn up in leather and each fastened to a cord a cubit long. They throw these at the horses and thus bind their legs together and sometimes they will fasten a man's arms to his sides in the same way. These Indians are so expert in the use of this weapon that they will bring down a deer with it in the chase. Their principal weapon, however, is the sling. With it they will hurl a huge stone with such force that it will kill a horse. In truth, the effect is little less great than that of an arquebus, and I have seen a stone, thus hurled from a sling, break a sword in two pieces, which was held in a man's hand at a distance of thirty paces. Manco's raids finally became so annoying that Pizarro sent a small force from Cusco under Captain Diego to attack the Inca. Captain Villa Diego found it impossible to use horses, although he realized that cavalry was the important arm against these Indians. Confident in his strength and in the efficacy of his firearms, and anxious to enjoy the spoils of a successful raid against a chief reported to be traveling surrounded by his family and with rich treasure, he pressed eagerly on, up through a lofty valley toward a defile in the mountains, probably the pass of Panticaya. Here, fatigued and exhausted by their difficult march, and suffering from the effects of the altitude, 16,000 feet, his men found themselves ambushed by the Inca, who, with a small party, little more than 80 Indians, attacked the Christians, who numbered 28 or 30, and killed Captain Villa Diego and all his men except two or three. 
To anyone who has clambered over the passes of the Cordillera Huilcampampa, it is not surprising that this military expedition was a failure, or that the Inca, warned by keen-sighted Indians posted on appropriate vantage points, could have succeeded in defeating a small force of weary soldiers armed with the heavy blunderbuss of the 17th century. In a rocky pass, protected by huge boulders, and surrounded by quantities of natural ammunition for their slings, it must have been relatively simple for eighty Quichuas, who could hurl a huge stone with such force that it would kill a horse, to have literally stoned to death Captain Diego's little company before they could have prepared their clumsy weapons for firing. A reason for the safety of the Incas in Wilcampampa the fugitives returned to cusco and reported their misfortune the importance of the reverse will be better appreciated if one remembers that the size of the force with which pizarro conquered peru was less than two hundred only a few times larger than captain villadiego's company which had been wiped out by manco its significance is further increased by the fact that the contemporary spanish writers with all their tendency to exaggerate place Manco's force had only a little more than eighty Indians. Probably there were not even that many. The wonder is that the Inca's army was not reported as being several thousand. Francisco Pizarro himself, now hastily set out with a body of soldiers, determined to punish this young Inca who had inflicted such a blow on the prestige of Spanish arms. But this attempt also failed, for the Inca had withdrawn across the rivers and mountains of Huilcampampa to Huiticos, where, according to Cieza de Leon, he cheered his followers with the sight of the heads of his enemies. Unfortunately, for accuracy, the custom of displaying on the ends of pikes the heads of one's enemies was European and not Peruvian. To be sure, the savage Indians of some of the Amazonian jungles do sometimes decapitate their enemies, remove the bones of the skull, dry the shrunken scalp and face, and wear the trophy as a mark of prowess, just as the North American Indians did the scalps of their enemies. Such customs had no place among the peace-loving Inca agriculturalists of central Peru. There were no Spaniards living with Manco at that time to report any such outrage on the bodies of Captain Diego's unfortunate men. Probably the conquistadores supposed that Manco did what the Spaniards would have done under similar circumstances. Following the failure of Francisco Pizarro to penetrate to Huiticos, his brother Gonzalo undertook the pursuit of the Inca and occupied some of his passes and bridges, but was unsuccessful in penetrating the mountain labyrinth. Being less foolhardy than Captain Diego, he did not come into actual conflict with Manco. Unable to subdue the young Inca, or prevent his raids on travelers from Cusco to Lima, Francisco Pizarro, with the assent of the royal officers who were with him, established the city of Ayacucho at a convenient point on the road, so as to make it secure for travelers. Nevertheless, according to Montesinos, Manco caused the good people of Ayacucho quite a little trouble. Finally, Francisco Pizarro, having taken one of Manco's wives prisoner with other Indians, stripped and flogged her, and then shot her to death with arrows. Accounts of what happened in Huiticos under the rule of Manco are not very satisfactory. 
Father Calancha, who published in 1639 his Coronica Moralizada, or pious account of the missionary activities of the Augustinians in Peru, says that the Inca Manco was obeyed by all the Indians who lived in a region extending for 200 leagues and more toward the east and toward the south, where there were innumerable Indians in various provinces. With customary monastic zeal and proper religious fervor, Father Calancha accuses the Inca of compelling the baptized Indians who fled to him from the Spaniards to abandon their new faith, torturing those who would no longer worship the old Inca idols. This story need not be taken too literally, although undoubtedly the escaped Indians acted as though they had never been baptized. Besides Indians fleeing from harsh masters, there came to Wilcampampa in 1542 Gomez Perez, Diego Mendez, and half a dozen other Spanish fugitives, adherents of Amagro rascals, says Calancha, worthy of Manco's favor. Obliged by the civil wars of the conquistadores to flee from the Pizarros, they were glad enough to find a welcome in Huiticos. To while away the time, they played games and taught the Inca checkers and chess, as well as bowling on the green and quoits. Montesinos says they also taught him to ride horseback and shoot an arquebus. They took their games very seriously, and occasionally violent disputes arose, one of which, as we shall see, was to have fatal consequences. They were kept informed by Manco of what was going on in the vice-royalty. Although encompassed within craggy and lofty mountains, the Inca was thoroughly cognizant of all those revolutions which might be of benefit to him. Perhaps the most exciting news that reached Uticos in 1544 was in regard to the arrival of the first Spanish viceroy. He brought the new laws, a result of the efforts of the good bishop Las Casas to alleviate the sufferings of the Indians. The new laws provided, among other things, that all the officers of the crown were to renounce their repartimientos, or holdings of Indian serfs, and that compulsory personal service was to be entirely abolished. Repartimientos, given to the conquerors, were not to pass to their heirs, but were to revert to the king. In other words, the new laws gave evidence that the Spanish crown wished to be kind to the Indians and did not approve of the Pizarros. This was good news for Manco and highly pleasing to the refugees. They persuaded the Inca to write a letter to the new viceroy asking permission to appear before him and offer his services to the king. The Spanish refugees told the Inca that by this means he might some day recover his empire, or at least the best part of it. Their object in persuading the Inca to send such a message to the viceroy becomes apparent when we learn that they also wrote as from themselves desiring a pardon for what was past and permission to return to Spanish dominions. Gomez Perez, who seemed to have been the active leader of the little group, was selected to be the bearer of the letters for the Inca and the refugees. Attended by a dozen Indians, whom the Inca instructed to act as his servants and bodyguard, he left Huilcampampa, presented his letters to the viceroy, and gave him a large relation of the state and condition of the Inca and of his true and real designs to do him service. The vice-king joyfully received the news, and granted a full and ample pardon of all crimes as desired.
and as to the Inca, he made many kind expressions of love and respect, truly considering that the interest of the Inca might be advantageous to him, both in war and peace. And with this satisfactory answer, Gomez Perez returned both to the Inca and to his companions. The refugees were delighted with the news and got ready to return to king and country. Their departure from Huiticos was prevented by a tragic accident, thus described by Garcilaso. The Inca, to humor the Spaniards and entertain himself with them, had given directions for making a bowling green, where, playing one day with Gomez, Perez, he came to have some quarrel and difference with this Perez about the measure of a cast, which often happened between them. For this, Perez, being a person of a hot and fiery brain, without any judgment or understanding, would take the least occasion in the world to contend with and provoke the Inca. Being no longer able to endure his rudeness, the Inca punched him on the breast, and bid him to consider with whom he talked. Perez, not considering in his heat and passion either his own safety or the safety of his companions, lifted up his hand, and, with the bowl, struck the Inca so violently on the head that he knocked him down. He died three days later. The Indians hereupon, being enraged by the death of their prince, joined together against Gomez and the Spaniards, who fled into a house, and with their swords in their hands defended the door. The Indians set fire to the house, which, being too hot for them, they sallied out into the marketplace, where the Indians assaulted them and shot them with their arrows, until they had killed every man of them. And then afterwards, out of mere rage and fury, they designed either to eat them raw, as their custom was, or to burn them and cast their ashes into the river, that no sign or appearance might remain of them. But at length, after some consultation, they agreed to cast their bodies into the open fields, to be devoured by vultures and birds of the air, which they supposed to be the highest indignity and dishonor that they could show to their corps. Garcilaso concludes, I informed myself very perfectly from those chiefs and nobles who were present and eyewitnesses of the unparalleled piece of madness of that rash and harebrained fool, and heard them tell this story to my mother and parents with tears in their eyes. There are many versions of the tragedy. They all agree that a Spaniard murdered the Inca. End of section 15. Recording by William Tomko.